right now on Matter of Fact. True humiliation, because I've uh, always worked hard and provided, provided for myself. Millions of families are facing impossible choices. Do I put food on the table tonight for my kids? Or am I paying rent? Or am I paying utilities? Feeling stressed and overwhelmed. Knowing that you can't take care of your families is really kind of shocking in the richest country in the world. Why are so many working Americans struggling just to get by? Plus, Harriet Tubman, Underground Railroad conductor. Correspondent Joey Chen takes us on a journey to retrace the steps along Harriet Tubman's path to freedom. And Michaela J. Rodriguez, unscripted. This is what I wanted. This is what I've dreamed of. I've worked hard. And I think this is where my life begins. The Emmy Award nominee gets candid with Soledad about her Golden Globe moment, how she's representing trans women, and life after Pose. I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. No matter where you live, people in your community are struggling to keep the lights on, to keep food on their tables. How many? A record number, a whopping 20 million American families have fallen behind on their utility bills. That's about one in every six households. 34 million people, including 9 million children, are facing food insecurity. Two years ago, we met Brett Favia, a hospitality worker in Milwaukee who'd lost his job. He talked to us about needing help and his worries beyond COVID-19. Twice a month, I walk a mile to the food pantry to pick up groceries. The food pantry really helps um, fill in that gap. My first time to go as a shopper was a, a time of um, true humiliation because I've uh, always worked hard and provided for myself and to not be able to do that and to actually need like a food handout it's a humbling experience well, thank you uh, well. I started to think you know I should really give back I shouldn't just take from the pantry and I approached the director of the food pantry and asked if there was an opportunity to volunteer what I've learned from helping at the food pantry is that there's an ongoing need to feed people in our city that after COVID uh, ends and we go back to normal, there'll still be people who don't have a means to, to make money to feed their family. Arohi Pathak is the Director of Policy for the Poverty to Prosperity Program at the Center for American Progress. Arohi Pathak, thank you for talking with me. We know that the pandemic affected groups unequally, racially unequally, certainly in terms of economic status unequally. What did you find? Recovering from the pandemic was not an equal opportunity. For a lot of people, particularly the lowest income folks, those that didn't have savings or had very little savings, when they lost their jobs, they really lost everything. And so for those people, coming back, recovering has been really tenuous. On top of that, we add, you know, the high cost of food, the high cost of rent, the high cost of utilities. When you're working in a really low-income job that pays the bare minimum, does not include any benefits like health care or does not include any uh, paid time off, you really have no wiggle room in your budgets. Well, the poverty line for a family of four is about $29,000, which by my back-of-the-envelope math is you know, a $15 an hour job that gets you to the, basically gets you to the 
the, the poverty line. Our federal minimum wage is something like $7.25, which is considerably lower than what families need across the country. There's no place in America where a family can afford a one-bedroom apartment working kind of the minimum wage threshold. Just think about how much stress they carry with them every single day, how that stress impacts every single thing in their life, every decision in their life. We haven't spoken a lot about hunger. It doesn't seem to me that the forecast out of the food banks is, is better at all. In fact, I think, I think it's getting worse. During the pandemic, federal investments kept kind of the worst of hunger at bay because it expanded benefits, it expanded who was eligible for benefits, it you know, provided universal school meals to every kid across the country. But all of those investments were temporary. They're all gone. So is that the, the answer to how to pull people out of poverty, just continued investment? What it is about is pulling together and being really strategic about the solutions that work, like the child tax credit. It really worked. It alleviated child poverty and lifted millions of people out of poverty over the span of just six months. And parents, including myself actually, were getting these monthly payments, $300 or $250, that they knew that they were going to get to use that to pay their bills. If people are actually self-sufficient, if people are getting paid good wages, getting um, access to benefits through their work, that means they're able to take care of their families. Arohi Pathak with the Center for American Progress. Thank you, I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Next on Matter of Fact, he traveled the path of the Underground Railroad. You walked? Walked, traveling over 800 miles. Correspondent Joey Chen with the story of one man's quest to follow Harriet Tubman's footsteps along the path to freedom. And still ahead, Emmy-nominated actress Michaela J. Rodriguez talks to Soledad about breaking barriers. You've said that every win for yourself is a win for others, too. What do you, what do you mean by that? You're watching Matter of Fact, America's number one nationally syndicated public affairs news magazine. This year marks a milestone on the eastern shore of Maryland. It's the 200th anniversary of Harriet Tubman's birth. Commemorations have been happening all year. A statue honoring the legendary conductor of the Underground Railroad was just unveiled near her hometown of Cambridge, Maryland. We've heard more about Tubman in recent years, from the movement to put her face on the $20 bill to new museums and Parkland dedicated to her and others who escaped enslavement. Our special correspondent, Joey Chen, met a man who not only studied Tubman's journey, he set out to follow in her footsteps. History offers no proof that these were her words. If you see the torches in the woods, keep going. But they surely reflect the spirit of Harriet Tubman's flight from enslavement. Don't ever stop. If you want a taste of freedom, keep going. Everybody knows Harriet Tubman, Underground Railroad conductor. But what? don't we get about her? What we don't get about Harriet is Harriet lived multiple lifetimes. Anthony Cohen has spent much of his lifetime tracking hers. I'm a historian of African-American history. A historian who literally followed Tubman's footsteps. 
In the mid-1990s, Cohen set out from Maryland, Tubman's home state, traveling the path of the Underground Railroad all the way to Canada. You walked? Walked. Uh, traveled through five states, traveling over 800 miles, and the main modus of my travel was walking, 10 to 25 miles a day. Why did you do this? <laughs> I did it to see what remained of the uh, historical route of the Underground Railroad. Research by Cohen and other historians has uncovered multiple routes that as many as 100,000 enslaved people used to free themselves in the years leading up to the Civil War. Tubman led dozens to freedom after making the journey herself, armed with what she'd learned growing up as an enslaved child known as Minty Ross on Maryland's rural eastern shore. It's surrounded by water, creeks, rivers, freshets, those places where uh, fresh water and brackish water collide. It's got swamps, it's got agricultural land, vast forests. I brought you here to talk about nature's um, role in the escape to freedom. Along these trails, Cohen explains how that understanding of nature was key to safe passage on the Underground Railroad. Why did they follow the path of the water? Uh, they followed the path of the water because it was a highway. Just look around us. Nature's roadmap is everywhere. The flow of water helped travelers understand their direction. And even in the dark, thick moss on trees could help point them north. These were um, natural clues um, that they had learned about on the plantation uh, long before they ever uh, took the first step towards freedom. As a public historian who works outside traditional academics, Cohen chronicles the experiences of enslaved people as they dared to liberate themselves. So what you're seeing is the bottom. Following another escape route, Cohen built a three by three foot box to secretly ship himself north by rail. What was it like in there? Dark and hot. Today that real life experience draws visitors to Button Farm, the living history center Cohen created after he appeared on the Oprah show and helped her prepare for her role in the film Beloved, in which nature had a starring role too. We made the landscape the oppressor. The sun beat down on her. She had to travel up streams at night. It was taste, touch, smell, sights, and sounds of the world of slavery. And that put a seed in my mind about the connection between nature and the Underground Railroad. It's a connection that could easily be lost, like the names of those who were once enslaved and died here, with only an X to mark their graves. But on Harriet Tubman's trail, the path to freedom won't ever be forgotten. In Germantown, Maryland, I'm Joey Chen for Matter of Fact. Coming up on Matter of Fact, she's the first trans woman to win a Golden Globe. My walk of life is different from the next girl's walk of life. but. I like to approach it with love. Actress Michaela J. Rodriguez on Living Your Truth.
If you've ever watched an awards show, whether it's the Oscars or the Emmys or the Golden Globes, you'll often hear an actor say, it is just an honor to be nominated. While true, for some actors it's more than that. It's validation. Michaela J. Rodriguez is getting lots of validation lately for her work. She is the first trans woman to win a Golden Globe Award, taking home the prize for lead actress in a drama series for her performance in Pose. She's also an Emmy-nominated actress and an activist who has called her win a sign that a door has swung open. I spoke to her recently about what she calls living in joy. Hi, nice to see you. Hello, hello, thank you for having me of today. Of course, of course. You've got a lot happening. You got a new show on Apple Plus called Loot. Obviously, Pose was amazing and huge for you. Does it feel like a pinch me moment? Does it feel like, hey, listen, I worked hard. I'm exactly where I deserve to be. You know, in the very beginning when it all started, it was a pinch me moment and it lasted for about three years of the pinch me because I just didn't want to believe it. And that's due to my parents' upbringing. Like my mom and my dad, they worked all of their lives. Um, and I think that was the only thing they knew. So what I adapted from them was to work all of my life. But I adapted this kind of workaholic, perfectionist kind of mentality where in the beginning of the work, I didn't enjoy it. Now I'm at a place where, like you said, yeah, I feel great. And I do deserve and I am worthy and I am worth it. You said that every win for yourself is a win for others too. What do you, what do you mean by that? I mean that it's an elevation of awareness and it is an elevation of representation. If I was put in this position and people can see my talent, then there's other people that can see your talent as well. For people who didn't see Pose, and you people should go watch it right now, uh, tell everybody what Pose was about. Pose is specifically about the ballroom scene and it is a depiction of how the LGBTQAI community come together in times when it is not easy, especially in the 1980s. It was the underground ballroom scene. And though they couldn't go into spaces like the corporate world to pursue a job because of maybe their appearance, but who they are as a person, being trans or gay, there was a space for them to go to and find solace, find family, find hope, find joy. And so I'm curious, somebody calls you and says, oh yeah, we want to do a show about the ballroom scene. And you, as a teenager, you knew that world, you, you were in that world, and it was like a perfect role for you. I remember saying to myself before running downstairs to my mother and my stepdad, this is where my life begins. This is what I've wanted, this is what I've dreamed of. There have been lots of communities and states where we've seen people clamp down uh, aggressively against trans people and um, in conversations that involve trans people at all. How are you feeling at this moment on that front? When it comes to legislatives and, and laws being passed, we have to constantly stay diligent and make sure that they don't get passed and call up as much as we can. But I think also, while doing so, we have to live our lives and show people how happy we are. We can't live in the sorrow, though there is many struggles when it comes to us. In the times of adversity and in the times of despair, I choose hope and joy, and I let those shower all over those haters and people who don't see it fit for us. And it usually wins. It has won. So nice to see you. Thank you for talking with me. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you for having me.
When we come back, the youngest Holocaust survivors are now in their late 70s. These survivors suffered tremendously, tremendous losses at the hands of Germans, at the hands of the Nazis. The latest on how Germany will provide for the care aging survivors need. And still ahead. This jacket can raise and lower its own hood at the push of a button. A robot hoodie making an important fashion statement. To stay up to date with Matter of Fact, sign up for our newsletter at matteroffact.tv. It's been 70 years since the signing of the Luxembourg Agreement, a series of historic documents that created a compensation system for the victims of Nazi persecution and the survivors of Nazi concentration camps. World leaders gathered in Berlin, Germany last week for a somber commemoration of the agreement's signing. There, officials announced new emergency humanitarian payments to aid and support Ukrainian survivors of the Holocaust. A recognition of the trauma and hardship that they are enduring as a result of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. In April, we reported on massive humanitarian efforts to move the elderly and disabled survivors from their war-torn homes in Ukraine to safety in Germany. These Holocaust survivors were subjected to unimaginable horrors when they were young. They were targeted for extermination, and now at the end of their life, um, they're facing unimaginable horrors. So the world abandoned them 80 years ago, left them to die, left them to fend for themselves, and we will never abandon them again. These vulnerable survivors, now resettled in Germany, will receive additional support for in-home care, as will aging and fragile survivors around the world. Of the approximately 280,000 Holocaust survivors alive today, about 50,000 live in the U.S. The youngest are now well into their late 70s, and about one-third are estimated to live below the poverty line. Next on Matter of Fact, a hands-free hoodie made to last. It held up after 20 washes, and they even ran a truck over the jacket. A look at fashion designed for function. And finally, it's where function meets fashion. This jacket can raise and lower its own hood at the push of a button without the help of electronics or batteries. Dan Preston, a Rice University mechanical engineer, created it. Here's how it works. Small inflatable pouches are connected to soft tubes inside the jacket. When you press the button on the jacket, air flows from a canister of carbon dioxide through the pouches. The pouches fold and unfold to form kinks that can inflate or deflate an airbag in the hood. The jacket's considered a soft robot, meaning it has flexible materials. Preston hopes the jacket can be worn by people with disabilities who have mobility issues. The clothing is also washing machine friendly. The team found it held up after 20 washes, and they even ran a truck over the jacket, which hopefully would never happen outside of testing. Mass production could take five to 10 years. The next phase is to test the jackets in clinical trials so that they can be used in medical settings and for people with disabilities. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien, and I'll see you back here next week. Listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI, Pluto, and YouTube.